Good morning, everybody. It's Paul Gilroy here, Director of the Sarah Parker Riemann Centre for the Study of Racism and Racialization at UCL. And my guest this morning needs no introduction, so I won't try and introduce him. It is Steve McQueen, award-winning artist, film director, household name, and general catalyst for the positive. Steve, thank you so much. I know you really are incredibly busy, and it's just a joy to be able to talk to you about what's going on around us and about the new work that you've got in process, particularly this amazing medley of films, Small Acts, which is beginning in a week or so. I thought one place to begin would be just to say, I've always thought racism doesn't let black people have a history. It keeps us in the present always. We're always in the present. So we denied a history and we're not allowed to think with reference to a future. So it just seems to me that to make this amazing collection of historical material and to pitch it into the situation that we're in is a way of not just restoring the history, but of orienting people towards a possible future. So I just wondered what you thought about that history. Thanks for the introduction, Paul. First of all, for me, it was always about planting myself in a situation where I had an idea of who I was, where I was, and where I wanted to go. And I say I, meaning we. It was very difficult sometimes growing up in the UK as a black child, as a black male, young child, and how I am now, to get some kind of bearings of what the future holds. But also, everything was always unstable because no one thought that you had any roots here or any stability here. I mean roots as far as stability. So you could be pushed and you could be toppled over. So for me... Small Acts was about shoring up the foundations of who we are and where we came from and what we've contributed to this country on so many levels and influenced it in so many levels. So that's what Small Acts for me was about. Yeah, I feel that. And I think that I haven't seen all the five films, but the ones I've seen certainly do that. But they go beyond saying simply, you know what, in some sense, we belong to this place. In some sense, you have to recognise that this place has no future without recognising our belonging here. Absolutely. They push through to something even further than that, which is about saying, actually, you don't have to fear that belonging, that in admitting us into, if you like, the nation's sort of official portrait of itself, you're not going to lose anything. You don't have to fear that admission. You don't have to fear the entry ticket. It's belated and it's been so much connected to all the cruel, horrible things that are in the background with Windrush and all of that. But you really do not have to fear letting us into that portrait. Yeah. It's been a long time in the making. This has been 11 years. So immediately after Hunger, I knew this was what I wanted to do. There was a sort of a rough plan. But at the end of the day, it was one of those situations of having to get the platform to do it. And I knew always it had to be the BBC, for example, because for me, these weren't local stories, these were national stories. And at the same time, I knew these were movies, feature films, because these stories needed this plinth, they needed that sort of canvas that OE Cinema could do. And the fact of having that platform and having that canvas is also allowing us to sort of talk about what you say about the portrait or the picture that we're in, that we are part of this story. And we've changed things in a way that can never be reversed. And it's amazing. And I think in some ways, for me, it wasn't just about acknowledging it, it was about celebrating it, and that's it. It's interesting you put it like that, because I think the first film, the Mangrove film, is very much a film of protest, I would say, but it's also a film about the nature of justice, and it makes, as it comes first before the others, it makes justice absolutely fundamental. 
And our movement in this country, which has been in part a movement to belong and to be seen to belong, is also a movement for justice. And so I think it's very interesting that you made that one first. And in a way, it's a recognisable political story that speaks very directly to the context of Black Lives Matter, speaks very directly to the context of the Windrush scandal and the horrors that continue. I mean, I know we all know the Windrush thing's been going on for 20, 30 years, and we all know people who've been victims of it over that time. And it's not just about what Theresa May did, although what she did was awful. It's not just about that, because Labour and Conservative, all of them, they've all been doing it, and they've all been doing it for the longest time. But now, when some of that starts to come to light, it creates a new setting for that demand for justice. And I think that's really fundamental that justice is absolutely nailed on in the biggest, biggest letters, in the loudest voice from the beginning of the whole medley of films. Justice, morality, consciousness. I mean, is in order to put one foot in front of the other when you go out the road, exit your house, how are you going to survive? Any and anybody. So the fact that the first thing is about the mangrove nine and the whole idea of what happened to them and how they triumphed with their own voices taking on the establishment with their own voices, using the tools of the establishment, but with their own voices, was beautiful. I mean, that's what happens with music. That's what happens in every kind of aspect of creative life. And I think the whole idea of something which is Black and the whole idea which is something which is beautiful as far as talking about justice and freedom can reverberate throughout the land, can influence any and everybody. It's a case of that sort of moral stance that justice, as you talk about, and how it can be sort of reverberated throughout the land. And every level, education, employment, everything can be affected by that. But not just for a few, but for all. That's what it's about, for sure. And how much we affected that and we've changed that. You know, we're not just making noise about a small part of the situation. Our noise is reverberating throughout the land, throughout the bloodstream of the country and beyond, and beyond, and beyond. I wonder about that because, of course, a number of the people, the families of the mangrove people, some of the people themselves are still around, still alive. And that must give you a very difficult, complicated task. I mean, all of the films, in a way, seem to me have a relationship to reality, to real people, to real places, to real elements in a longer history of life in Britain, in Europe. I wonder what that's like, particularly in the case of the mangrove, because you had to present the material, I'm sure, to the people who were part of it. You know, how did they react to what well, you done with it? Interestingly, my father was a friend of one of the mangrove nine, and he was a very close friend of his. Uh, he used to come around my house all the time. He used to be lying on the floor watching TV while these two guys would be chatting because you couldn't join the conversation because, you know, it's adults talking, whatever. But I didn't know who he was. I didn't know about the mangrove nine until maybe 15 years ago. My father used to go to the back of yard. My father used to go to the mangrove. You know, my relatives are from Grenada and Trinidad, so it was integrated within. We were living in Shiva Bush before my family moved out into the suburbs in Ealing. So I kind of knew people that I didn't even know were involved. And that sort of negotiation, of course, has been difficult at certain points because you're dealing with people who were dealing with post-traumatic stress disorder, you know, for years, for decades, and had no sort of help. And the children are all those people going through that. So there was a lot of trauma, absolutely still is. And you're never going to get it 100% right for anyone. But for the majority, it's been an amazing experience. And I think those conversations with some of the relatives now are still happening. Because I think to sort of put it on the big screen as we did, and giving these stories a victory that in some ways they, they had, but they never really had, because it was some parts of the community who saw them as champions, as heroes. Not all the community. And these aren't just local heroes, these are national heroes. And that's what I wanted to do. And I think for the majority of relatives and the uh, Mexicans, it's been a great experience. 
another is the conversation we're having to have. Just because we're dealing with trauma and we're dealing with the children of, it is heavy. It's heavy. It's not an easy, easy thing at all. Absolutely. How that passes from one generation to another is really a strong undercurrent in all the material that I've seen anyway. That sense of intergenerational responsibility, intergenerational conversation. And of course, that's very much gendered, actually, certainly in red, white and blue, you know. It's a curiously intimate and interesting study of how a black father and a black son speak to one another and acquire the capacity to communicate across some of the difficult things and anxieties and pressure, the pressure that they're under in that life at that time. So I think it's really important for people to appreciate how much the generation responsibilities cut into all of these films. And you now yourself, I imagine, also feel this, that there are things we have to do, that things we have to do to speak to people who are younger than ourselves. I mean, you say you didn't know about it till 15 no, years ago. I, I mean, they won't know about it until they see what you've put in front of them. So yeah, yeah. there's that aspect too. I know it's really important to what you've done, otherwise you wouldn't have done it that way because I know how focused on details you are. So I think the idea that all of those details, all of those minutiae, the recovery of that history of that experience so carefully so that every little detail corresponds to how people lived and what they saw and what they thought. And all of that is very, very powerful in the material too. All of the details, I don't mean the cars and all that. I'm talking about the details of interaction, the details of space. I mean, the space in which the family find themselves in red, white and blue is a beautiful reconstruction of a certain kind of, dare I say, this West Indian life. That must have been done with love. It was done lovingly because it comes across lovingly. I mean, I think the details of even how you speak to your parents, where you sit on the table, all kinds of things, you know, grace, all kinds of stuff I remember, which was part of the form of communication. And again, it's kind of weird. I don't want to be analytical about it in a way because it's a part of me. But when you take yourself out of it and you look at it and you look at it and, okay, how, why, oh, this would be like this. And then, you know, again, it's even at the dinner table. You know, that was the only time that you could actually have necessarily a conversation, a proper conversation, because everyone will be going to work. People were coming back from work, people would be tired. There wasn't a moment. The only time you could actually have FaceTime, at least I remember, that my parents was at the dinner table or when we sort of did a board game or when we did things like that. So that was the only time. So it was always about activity and possibly getting something in and having that dialogue. Little things like that. And food, of course. It's kind of crazy, but everything was about the food. <laughs> and about the board game. I mean, I didn't think I would live to see an image of a black family playing Scrabble. Um, <laughs> recovery of the kind of cultural complexity of their life and formation. I love that sequence in the film, and I think lots of people will recognise that as an image that cuts against all the sort of, you say, trauma, that idea that black families are somehow diseased, that there's somehow there's something wrong with them, that their kinship's not right, that they have too much of this and too little of that, too much Victorian this, too much violent that, too much tension. I had so much love in my family, so much love, so much love, and that love always came out through protection, you see. And that's the thing about Red, White, and Blue with Leroy Logan, his father, similar to my, you know, and others. And I imagine a lot of people identify with that because my father would be my father because he didn't want to see me hurt because he had been the brunt of so much things. Imagine people going, coming at nine to five and what they had to go through to come home with their wages to sort of give to the children and to be fearful of what could happen to them because they were taking the brunt of it. So I knew that my father was very much... When I said that I wanted to go to art school, my father was like, you know, art school? Um, okay. Um, 
you know, he always told me to get a trade. He wanted me to have something in my arsenal that no one could ever take away from me because he knew the white establishment could take that away from me to say, okay, you're not worthy of this. You're not deserving of this thing away from you. But if you had a trade and you could do something, that that could never be taken away from you. And that was his way of sort of just trying to protect me in a way. Mm. That dynamic of protection you handle in Red, White and Blue, I mean, I don't think this is a spoiler now, so I hope it's a safe thing to say. <laughs> There's a moment, obviously, after Leroy's father has been brutally and cruelly assaulted by, after the assault, let's give the minimum way. After the assault, Leroy goes to see him in hospital. And there's a kind of very poignant, very intense encounter between the two of them where that dynamic of protection is reversed generationally. So instead of the parent seeking to protect the child, you have the child erupting with the desire to protect the parent. That's amazing. That's a great where well, you pick that up on. And of course, the father being quite embarrassed about it in a way. You know, there's a certain way he looks at him with his face all sort of swollen, distorted, and his son looking at him. And then what triggers the son is the reaction of his mother. Not necessarily the father, because he has to hold up in front of the father. But when he looks at his mother, that's when he breaks down. And that's when things slightly shift as far as the weight is concerned. Not the fact that he takes over, but he realizes his responsibility. The son now knows what his responsibility is now that his father had before. That he has to take on the baton, he has to move on. He's the one who has to be the sort of, a, I won't say protector at all, but to sort of take on whatever necessarily the father was holding on before. Yeah, and just that sense of seeing your parent as a victim, seeing your parent as vulnerable. You know, that's a shock. And that shock does a lot of work in the plucking of that beautiful film. Well, I won't say any more about that, but there are lots of things that struck me about it. I mean, the other thing I guess I want to mention, I said I wasn't going to, is how it shows, and there are elements of this in the first film too, it shows that black people can have ordinary lives. It's not sort of deviant. It's not only trauma. Mm -hmm. It's an ordinary life. And to me, the power of seeing it in an ordinary way in a house where people treat each other as well as they can, they work for each other to realise each other's possibilities, to have an ordinary life and do ordinary things and have joy and laughter and all of that, that comes across very strongly in the way that that interior life of that family is kind of captured across the, yeah, they have conflicts, but they sort of sort them out. They work them out. There's a moment where you think it's going to tear. And we all know those moments happen. There's a repair that goes on, there's care there, there's love there, there's joy there that makes it kind of ordinary. People have problems, they work through their problems. That's not something that you see all that often in cinematic representation of black family life. No, and it's sort of what happens to us on every single day of our life. But yes, you're quite right, it's not sort of projected or given that attention and other things are. What's interesting about that family is that it's all about trying to sort of achieve more. It's all about achievement in a way. It's all about, come on, we can do this. Come on, we can work through this. Come on, let's do this. It goes straight for the family, but it also goes right up to the Metropolitan Police when Leroy joins it. Mm -hmm. And he thinks he can progress in the same way. Yes, I imagine there will be mistakes along the way, but he can actually proceed and progress. But it's not sort of that kind of environment. It's unforgiving for him as a black man. His development was stunted because of racism within the Metropolitan Police. And that's the thing about it. You know, you see the trial tribulations of the family and how it comes together and how wonderful they are and sort of getting into that point. And then he goes to another situation where that environment is not welcoming at all. And that's because of who he is as a person. And I think from 83, 84, that's where we are right now. This is not where the series stops, actually. The last piece of the series of films is education. But as far as I'm concerned, as progress is concerned in this country, in the UK, is that this is where it stops as far as 
how one tries to integrate to make change, not necessarily integrate, but to try and sort of change it within. That's exactly what Leroy said. He's trying to change the organization for within to make it better. And that's been stumped. I, I could add one thing because, you know, a very important element in this ingredients is John Baega. Yes. And what happened to John during the Black Lives Matter demonstration in London was hugely kind of integrated with Red, White and Blue because while we were making this, this is what happened. And I know for a fact, and he has said it himself, that the process of making Red, White and Blue and what happened when he spoke in a demonstration and afterwards when we did the pickup was very pivotal in what was going on. So art in some ways was imitating life for sure. I mean, we could talk about Star Wars and John, him being the golden boy, as they say, in Red, White and Blue. And him being the golden boy in Star Wars, but his development being stunted within the process with a series of films. And it was art imitating life, and therefore he was playing that. Yeah, I suppose the implicit suggestion that being a member of the Metropolitan Police is a bit like being a star trooper in the evil empire. <laughs> well, you said it. <laughs> Can we just speak briefly now about a Lover's Rock film? moved me greatly, it moved me greatly because I found its sort of sensuous, loving appreciation of the work that music does mm-hmm. and has done and goes on doing in the lives of people is a very rare thing. And actually the sort of sensuous part of it wasn't just the sound because the sound of the music seems to kind of saturate the visual presentation of the film in some very rare way. And I found myself being able to smell what was being cooked in that kitchen. It all came together into the body in that way. It's a very rare thing. I don't know how you managed to do that. Is that something you want to share? Um, you know, it's essential. The only way I can explain is through music. Because what you do is you set the tempo, you write the harmony, the melody, or whatever it is, and people can improvise within that. Because these are amazing actors, first and foremost. So they know the limitations of what they could do within the sort of time frame of 1980 and the language, how they move, even how they speak to each other. And we had an amazing choreographer. So we had this situation going on. And I think when black people were in the room with other young black people and seeing who was in charge, it definitely fused something. And to feel comfortable and have some kind of plan of what we were going to do, that they could sort of move within that frame, that was the starting point. And again, it's love. (laughs) It's kind of weird to say that. But it's love that you can appreciate with partners and how one used to dance. The tradition, in some ways, has not been deemed as important. But I remember when people should touch the lady's elbow and then work their way down the forearm to the wrist, to the hand, and hoping that she would grasp it. Because she didn't grasp it, that means she's not into it. But it was about touching the elbow first, getting the attention, pulling the hand all the way down the forearm to the wrist, and hoping she'll clasp. If she clasps, it is a dance. And again, the sensuality of it, and how the movement, and then the music. I mean, I love that tune by the investigators. Tell me what you think about me, baby. I mean, like some guy asking, I hope you like me. It's just so vulnerable and beautiful. It was where we were at making that picture. It was all about that kind of possibility. And it was beautiful. It was marvelous. And, you know, again, sometimes as an artist, as a filmmaker, you're invited. You know, you get to a point where you are invited and you're just there. Because in that environment, when I sit up there, that would have happened without a camera anyway. That would have happened without a camera. At some point, we were just invited. And the whole idea of what happened afterwards was the a cappella bit of the film when we were singing Silly Games. I mean, that just happened. And Dennis Burrell, who produced that picture, is in it. He plays someone who's in that picture, the old guy in there. And it just occurred, it emerged, and it was just, you know, sometimes you just got to hold on, and that's about it. 
I mean, obviously that genre of music is really important, but in that party, they're also playing other music. The other magical part of it was when the Kunta Kinte oh my God. comes on, because that has got very particular kind of sound for people who don't know dub music. It's got that very sort of insistent, it's almost like a kind of prototype of a, some sort of avant-garde electronic thing. Totally. For me, it's like a dog whistle going off. You know, working with Corti and on the music, on the script. I heard this tune, I was like, this is it. Because I knew I wanted dub. Okay, the, the ritual. The beginning of the blues, we had the girls dancing to, you know, chic or kung fu fighting. The guys leaning on the wall, sort of checking out the ladies. It's almost like a ritual, isn't it? And then, of course, then they get to lovers. And at the end, when the dub comes on, it's just, it takes off. It's futuristic. There's nothing about the present and everything about the future and possibilities. It's about possibilities and the future and something else. These guys, these women, you know, they work five days a week for the blues. The racism, the nonsense that they put up with in the week to get there on a Saturday night to let off. And it's all about the future. It's never about the present. It's never about the present and it's never about the past. It's always about the future. So that's why I just let off. You know, that's why I let off because it's all about not being present, but being somewhere else. And like you said to me, and we talked about this before briefly, you used the word church. And I think maybe church is the only time in the week where black people come together on a Sunday as such and basically elevate themselves to another place. And that's always about the future. They elevate themselves within churches somewhere else. I think that's it. It's very powerful. I mean, I'm sure you're going to get a very big reaction to that. I mean, you will to all of it. But to that in particular, because there's never been anything remotely like that. My aunt was so emotional because the story is about my aunt. Because I remember my uncle used to leave the back door open for her to go to blues on Saturday night for my, for my grandmother because my grandmother wouldn't let her out, you know. And my grandmother, she saw it in the NFT and she was so emotional about it. She was sobbing in tears. And it was about remembering that moment, I think. I can't speak for her, I shouldn't, but I think it was that whole idea of, it's almost like the top of your head would lift off. It was something else, something else. It's transcendent. But also, it's interesting you say that her reaction was tears. I'd seen a rough version of the mangrove thing, and I found myself, when I saw the final version, I was weeping, and I hadn't expected to be mm-hmm. so hard, given that I was roughly familiar with what you'd done. And but I, also what you know, what you know, but that's what art can do. That's yeah. what art can do. I mean, you know, if anyone knows anything about Mangrove Nine, it's you, but it's one of those things where art takes it to another situation. It's not the formal aspects in the book. Maybe it's the emotional, it's the sort of, as you said, the space, the smell, the real jeopardy that people are under, the threat, but also the fact that none of the Mangrove Nine men are alive today, not one of them. The only people are left are Anthea, the Quant, and Barbara Beast, and that's it. You know, none of the men are alive to this day, and that's the thing. And I said it before, you know, they were not seen as natural heroes, but with art, with film, we can make them that. Absolutely, we can make them that. Well, it's interesting you mentioned Barbara Beast because, of course, one of the other things you've done, and it's very interesting, is you've taken the photographs that were made at the time of the demonstrations and you've brought them to life in a way that is incredibly vivid and extraordinary. Because, again, you think you know what happened and you've got an idea from looking at those old black and white photographs. People like Horace Ove took of that demonstration where she has a big head. And here it is. I don't know how to account for, I don't have a vocabulary available for how you've brought it to life in a way that's so vivid. I suppose it's partly the actors. It's partly, as you said before, these are great actors who are given an opportunity to present the full repertoire of their skill. But also, they were playing themselves. They were playing themselves. The actress 
who played Barbara Bees, had a conversation with her about Darkest Jr. And the fact that, you know, she knew that she was in care, Barbara. And the fact that if they lost the case, that possibly her child, her son would have to be in care. And that hit her, apparently, when that conversation happened. So they were playing themselves more than maybe ever before, because they didn't often get the chance to sort of play your roots. I think that was very important. Alistair, you know, co-writing the script with me and his commitment to the detail of the trial. At that point, there was no transcripts of the trial. So what Alistair found, he found, I think it was the Kensington Post or Kensington Gazette or whatever. There was a journalist there every day who had transcribed the whole of the case in newspapers. So all of that was virtually verbatim. Again, and of course, there's a transition, isn't it, from the first half to the second half when we get into this sort of formal aspect. For me, Mangrove was, again, this is interesting. One of the producers said this. He said, it feels like a Western. I said, yeah, you're absolutely right. It is the Western. It is a Western. Some guy just wanting to open a little saloon. Maybe he was a bad guy before, you know, was in you know, a wrong side of the track before. And he kind of said, you know, I just want to go straight as well my saloon. But of course, that sheriff who knew him before is always hassling him. And then things just take off. So it is a kind of fable, you know. PC Pulley should get mm-hmm. mentioned here because that's a great performance from him. I don't know the actor's name, I'm afraid, but it's a great performance because he doesn't overplay it. And his bewilderment, he should get some sort of prize for his bewilderment in the court. I don't want to give things away, but I loved his bewilderment in that moment of the film. And I think we might try at UCL to give some belated recognition to Althea jones Lequant, who was a UCL student. You know, I'd like to think that when people have her history and memory restored to them, that they'll want to honour her for the role she played in bringing a better, a deeper, richer conception of justice in the life of... In the whole of the entire UK. She changed history, for sure. For sure, she changed history. Darkest changed history. All those guys, they changed history. There's another if, but or maybe about it. But the fact of the matter is that during people like Dark as other people's lives, there wasn't that real recognition. It was some guy on TV, possibly, or you saw him after the uprising in 2011, and you saw him on TV as some old guy. Again, a lot of people didn't actually know him and know what he did, and others like him did. And for me, it's so important right now. And again, it's very strange, of course, making these films at the time of George Floyd and Corona, you know, timing or whatever it is. You know, I'd rather George Floyd be alive today, but he didn't die in vain, that's for sure. So the timing is a bit weird in a way, but we have to sort of take advantage of, of course. We don't know what the effect of all this will be. No, well, (laughs) it could be worse. (laughs) It could be worse. It could be worse. Steve, thank you very, very much. I really appreciate you making the time. I know you're under pressure. And I've got to say thank you to you for all the listeners out there. I've known Paul since I was 19 years old. When I first met him at Goldsmiths University, and I used to knock on his door, myself and a guy called Desmond used to knock on his door, and he was always welcoming. He was always open to talking to me as a 19-year-old. Could you imagine? You imagine someone like that will just swap the person away and say, okay, we'll come back tomorrow. He opened his door, and I sit down and talk to him. So if there's ever a lesson in that, it's just to sort of, you know, listen to young people, because I think sometimes, actually, I do think that was very important for me, Paul, that you opened that door to me when I was 19 years old, and I could have this conversation with you, because it was just very important to have someone listen. And not necessarily I was making perfect sense at all, but the fact that I had someone like you listening to me is so important. I think if anyone out there is in the vicinity of younger people, and they're looking for something, just to give them a bit of time, it's going to help them tremendously. So Paul, again, weird, me turn the tables on you like this, but thank you, sir. Thank you so much. Thank you. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks. Thank you for listening. For more information about UCL Sarah Parker Roman Centre, find us at ucl.ac.uk forward slash racism dash racialization. Or follow us on Twitter at UCL underscore SPRC. This podcast was produced by me, Kaisa Kahu, 
an executive produced by Professor Paul Gilroy.